In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the last verse of the book of Judges. And um, a few weeks ago, we finished our sermon series in the book of Judges. Um, this year, uh, we've spent time, we, we, we preached through the book of Joshua and then into Judges. And so we went through uh, Joshua and Judges in past years. We've been through Genesis and Exodus and now Joshua and Judges. So we were able to put together this long arch, arching, kind of overarching picture of God and his people and the creation of his people and his promises to his people and their land, the taking, the, taking, the fulfillment of those promises. And so what, what we see when we in, were in the book of Joshua earlier this year is we see uh, triumph, we see victory, we see God's people getting the very thing that he promised his people. We know in the book of Exodus, when we look back on it, that, that as the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt and, and the Lord delivered them as they went into the desert, they didn't get what they were supposed to get. They didn't, they didn't uh, get the promises of God because they were not faithful. They were not obedient. And so we see it's not until... All of those leaders die that were in the desert, that, except for Joshua and Caleb, did they get to go into the promised land. And we see in the book of Joshua God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God making good on his promises. When we read the book of Judges, it begins to spiral out of control. It goes downhill fast. We see that, that people turn from God, that, that over and over and over, it, it says that, that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Six times it says that, but by the end, it says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They didn't even know what was holy and right in the eyes of the Lord. And man, if you were here a few weeks ago for the last... Uh, the, the last two weeks of Judges, man, it was just a hard pill to swallow. Like, you're like hearing, I cannot believe I'm hearing this, these things being said in church, much less coming from the Bible. That's how far it, it kind of spirals out of control. Now, in the very beginning of the year, I, I kind of plan out my preaching calendar. I, I know um, generally I pray through, I, I, I spend time in prayer thinking how... Um, man, how can we shepherd our church and how can our people grow and where are our hearts? What's going on in the world? What's going on in the life of our church? What do we not just know about the Bible? What parts of uh, biblical history do we need to put together? What parts of ecclesiology? I kind of like take this kind of holistic kind of approach to what can we do as we expositionally teach through the Bible in a year. And so earlier this year I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a lot of time in two chapter sixes. Romans chapter 6, which we did already, and, and man, A New Way of Life, it was a great sermon series, but I also knew that I was going to spend time in Deuteronomy chapter 6, because I wanted to talk about, I feel the need, I feel this, this burden, to talk about the need to disciple the next generation. I wanted to preach through Judges, because man, I feel like Judges is a lot like the world going on around us. Here's what I didn't put together at the beginning of the year. The book of Judges 
would not have happened if Deuteronomy chapter 6 would have, would have been fulfilled faithfully. Like if, if the people of Israel would have listened to Deuteronomy chapter 6, judges would not have happened. And so as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 6 today, we're gonna, we're gonna, it's, like, it's like coming out of judges and seeing like, oh man, look back at this warning. And, and for us as New Testament believers, this is very much for us going, okay, how do we not make the same mistakes that they made, that, that, that the Israelites made? Um, in the beginning of the book of Judges, I, I mentioned um, this four-generation fade that happens. And, and, and I mean this in our time, not in, in their time. And so we, we are a, a picture of Israel. We struggle with God. And as I, I want to talk about discipling the next generation and looking and discipling our children. Just as the Israelites faded from Joshua to the end of Judges, so it, it often happens in Christian homes. Shane Pruitt has put this out there, the four-generation fade that happens in Christian homes. Here's what happens. Parents don't make church a high priority for their kids. Kids grow up and make it a less of a priority for their kids, and those kids grow up and make it no priority for their kids. Those kids grow up with no concept of God. Or you could just look and say, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And here's what, here's what we need to know, that priorities today will impact your children and their children and their children. And here's my big truth as we begin wading into Deuteronomy chapter 6. God is good and keeps all his promises. He alone is worthy of our love and obedience. Like that's what I want you to walk away with from today. That's what I want you to look at God's word and see today is that God is good. And he keeps all of his promises. All of his promises are kept and fulfilled in Jesus. And he alone is worthy of our love and our obedience. He alone, no, no one else, no other thing, no other worldly thing, no other false god, no god, uh, no other false god made in a graven image is worthy of our love and obedience. Now, if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, we're going we're gonna to read, starting in verse 1. Verses 4 and 5 in this passage are known as, as the Shema. They're the beginning of the Shema. The Shema was a, a Jewish prayer. I had, I had Jed read it in Hebrew because I don't know if you know this or not, but this is the most quoted uh, passage in all of Israel. This is what they quote. This would be the beginning that they quote. It pairs. that There's other stuff. It goes like to Deuteronomy chapter 11. There's other things. Um, it became... Uh, that they, there's, the Jews believe that Jacob said this on his deathbed. Um, it began in the, the period of the second temple, which would have been about 550, 560 years before uh, the birth of Jesus. This began being quoted in the, in, in the temple and then morning and evening and with other prayers. Um, this may be, I don't know this for a fact, this may be the most quoted uh, statement in all of the world. Of, of all of time, 
this, this may have been quoted the most. So the, the whole chapter isn't the Shema. It's, it's those two verses, but it's then the principles after those verses that really set the trajectory of how Judaism would teach their children. And I believe these same, these same principles apply to us as Christians and how we ought to make disciples. Today, we're going to be in verses 1 through 15. Next week, Buddy will preach 16 through the end of the chapter. Starting in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And so here's my first big idea, and it's this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. When we read this, this is what we, we see. This is what the Lord has commanded that, that you do. He's told me to tell you this, that you may fear the Lord your God, that you may fear him. Now, we, we think about fear. We, we typically think about this the wrong way when we say fear God. This isn't, this isn't a like trembling like we just watch uh, Freddy Krueger on Friday the 13th. This isn't like horror film, goosebumps, scary. This is like out of, out of reverence. This is a, a, a familial fear, as, as Augustine said. This is, this is like the way you fear your father. It's a healthy fear. I think my boys are a great example of this. They know that I love them, and they know that I care for them, and they know that I would, I would literally die for them or take bullets for them or even let, me, let them shoot me with their airsoft guns for fun. I'll do, I'll do a lot for them. But they better, they better obey me. They better, they better fear me. They better understand that if they don't obey me, there's a consequence. Not out of my like needing to be right, but out of my love for them. My teaching, my commands, my rules for them aren't, aren't, for, aren't just for me and so that it makes me look good or feel good. Therefore, they're good. Therefore, they're protection. Therefore, they, they know. They, if dad says it, that means I do it. We should fear God and keep his commands. This is what I would just show you, is that actions have consequences. You're going to see this. I mean, just think about what happens when Israel doesn't fear God and keep his commands. You don't get the book of Joshua. You get the book of Judges. You get, the, you get the book of Joshua, Joshua when they fear God and they keep his commands. When they, when they go into the promised land and when they do what they, they, they're told to do. When they obey God. When they have this reverent fear of God to know that he cares for us. He loves us. He's doing what's best for us. We can trust him. Let us act out of that. You get the book of Joshua. It goes really well. But when you don't do it. When you don't fear God and you worship false gods, 
you're going to notice that actions have consequences, that, that what happens is it falls apart. And so from, from this, and there's this promise, you know, he says, you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. I mean, there's a promise to this. The, the Lord will, will bless you. He'll extend the days of your life. That's a general truth. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. That's the, the promised land. And so his promise to, to Israel is, if you obey me, if you fear me, and you keep my commandments, it will go well with you. And what we see in the Bible is that when they do it, it goes well, and when they don't do it, it is a dumpster fire. Now, verse 4, this is the Shema. This is what Jed read. This is what he started reading in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Here's my big idea. This is pretty simple. There's only one God. Love him more than anything, more than you love anything else. There's only one God. There's not multiple gods. There's not a plurality of gods. This is what we see being the problem in the book of Judges, isn't it? That in the book of Judges, what did they do? They intermarried, and they took on the, the gods, the false gods, the created gods, the, uh, the bell, uh, the, the, the Asherah poles, the different gods. They worshipped other gods, and they didn't keep God's commands. So when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, there's a statement here. It's saying he is God and he is God alone. There's, they're, they're, they're saying this is one God. There's not a, a multitude of gods. There's but one God. So love him more than you love anything else. Don't make an idol out of something else. Don't worship something else. Worship only God. Get that priority right. Now, this, this isn't meant to be a sermon on these two verses. I mean, we, we, if I were going to preach this as a sermon on these two verses, I would go to the New Testament, and I would, I would read Jesus' greatest commands. You see, Jesus, from the time he was a boy, he would have been quoting this very passage morning and evening. He knew it. And so when we read in the New Testament and we see uh, the, the commentary that he makes on it, it helps us have a fuller under understanding. Uh, but my, my, my purpose today is for us to work in our hearts that we would say, okay, what God is, what God is doing here, we're going to teach diligently. We're going to make sure that the four-generation fade doesn't happen. So here's how you make it happen. You make sure that there's only one God and you love him more than you love anything else. That the Lord is at the center. Verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And here's my big idea. What God works in your heart works out. You've heard that one before a bunch. 
and this is, this is a truth that we see in Scripture, is that what God does in your heart is going to flow out of you. We see it in the book of Ephesians uh, chapter 2, that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not uh, your, your own doing. This isn't your own works. This is a, a gift of God. It's not by works so that no man should boast. But here's the, here's the part of, of, of Ephesians chapter 2 where this flows out of. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That our, our, our actions don't save us. Our obedience doesn't save, save us. It's God's goodness that saves us. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And this is the good news of the gospel, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were ungodly, that while we were in rebellion against God, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. But when we place our faith and trust in Christ, he radically changes us. He gives us a new heart. What we learned this, year, this past year in the book of Romans, chapter 6, I am a new creation in Christ, it says. That, that we are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I once lived in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God. And so, when we love God, and we love Him more than anything else, because He's the only one and true God, it transforms who we are. And what's in us flows out of us. And here's how it applies. Here's where the rubber's going to meet the road. The next big idea. That being said, we must diligently make disciples. Listen to, listen to this again. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They should be on your heart. What God's worked in your heart is going to work out of you. The, the faith that you have in the Son of God is going to be... It's going to be the oil in your lamp. It's going to be the reason that your fire burns. It's, it, it, it is the pep in your step. It's the thing that's going to be coming off your tongue. Shall be on your heart. It's going to be on your heart. And you shall diligently teach them to your children. Listen. So I preach the book of, of Judges, and we kind of look, and, and we can look at the book of Judges, and we read it, and we're like, man, this is horrible. We can easily hold up a mirror and look at the world around us and go, man, look at all of go that's going on in our world. Our world is corrupt. It is nasty. It, it, it is treacherous out there. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Somebody's going to disciple your, disciple your children. It's either going to be you or it's going to be the world. That's your two choices. You're either going to disciple your children or the world is going to disciple your children. The result is either going to be the book of Joshua or the book of Judges. That's, that's 
how it's going to go down. And so he says we must teach them diligently to our children. And then he says, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you, you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and, and on your gates. He shows you here this, this way of life that is discipleship. We say in our church that discipleship is a lifestyle for a lifetime. Often in church, we think of discipleship training. We think of a discipleship group, or we think of sitting down one-on-one with being someone and being discipled. Maybe you were raised in a church that had a Sunday school model. We think of that as discipleship, or maybe it's your community group. That is discipleship. I want you to understand something. Discipleship isn't a, isn't a one-time act and function. It's not a singular way of learning and growing. I think what's important here is for us to, to, to define disciple. A disciple, uh, in the, the most basic sense, is a learner or a follower. And so when I, when I use it that way, that's historically what it meant. When I say he's a learner or a follower, that's what I mean. Like the world's either going to disciple your t- children. They're either going to teach them to learn. They're going to learn from them and they're going to follow the ways of the world. Or you're going to teach them to learn and to follow Christ. That's what, that's what I mean. So a disciple is a, is a learner or a follower. Now, when we say disciple, a Christian disciple, we've, we've kind of... Look at that, and we say, a disciple of Jesus is, right? So we look at, okay, this is what a learner or follower of Jesus ought to look like. A radical, right? Jesus was a radical. He, he did not fit into um, what, what the, the Pharisees of the day wanted him to look like. He for sure didn't look like what the Gentiles wanted him to look like. He was radical. He was different, and so therefore, his followers ought to look different. Radical, reproducing, um, Disciples make disciples. That's what, that's what we see in Scripture that Jesus said. Go and make disciples. Go and make learners. Uh, Paul, uh, to, to his protégés, to his disciples, says, what, I, what I've taught you, go teach others. What I've entrusted you, go entrust to others. And so disciples are radical, reproducing. It's lifelong. It doesn't stop. If Jesus says, like, if, if, if someone turns from me and they don't obey me, they're not my disciple. It's a, it's, it's, it's a lifestyle for a lifetime. It's lifelong. So they're a radical, reproducing, lifelong follower of Christ. That, that the key mark is that they take up their cross and they follow Jesus daily. That we crucify ourselves daily and we follow Christ. And so... It's not a one-time act. It's not, hey, I'm being discipled. It is, it is, yes, my life is a discipleship process that you're always striving, never arriving, that it's never a place of like, that's it. I've been discipled. I'm mature. I got it. I got it all figured out. No, you never arrive there. Discipleship is a, a lifestyle for a lifetime. We see here, the way that he says it, it's formal and informal. Listen, this is what we know. The Israelites, especially after the Second Temple period, even to today, are far more disciplined in their learning of the Scriptures, particularly those that would like end up, if you think in Jesus' time, be the Pharisees. Right? It was formal training. They went to the Temple from the time that they were young, and they were taught. There's a formal training. But you also see that it's informal. When you sit down and when you rise, when you walk by the way, that you would bind it, that you would put it here, that you would put it there. 
I've been in some of y'all's houses. Some of y'all do pretty good with that. Y'all got little signs here and signs there. You get it on the doorpost when you walk in. It's, it's, that's pretty cool. Uh, man, it was a, glad Hobby Lobby's a Christian company. Uh, makes it easy, doesn't it? They read Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, there's a formal and an informal. So, so the discipleship of my boys isn't just me bringing them to church. Now, I, I'm, I, I, you know, they're going to leave and they're going to go to their respective classes after this. And I know that their, their teachers are going to contribute to their discipleship process. And I'm thankful for them. I'm very thankful that Garrett Kirchner, that God has graciously put him in my church, that he can invest in my son, John Owen. I'm thankful that he gets to disciple him. But I'm not counting on just Garrett to do that. That it's, man, Garrett, that's your job. You disciple my kid. And if he turns out bad, it's your fault, bro. Blaming you. It's not how it works. It's not. And man, wasn't the, hasn't the church been guilty of that? It was like, you know, back in the 80s, it was like, boom, we got this cool thing called a youth pastor. I don't have to deal with my kids anymore. And that turned out real well, didn't it? No, it turned out horribly. So, it's not just his job. It's, it's my job. It's not just in my formal training. So much we think about family worship time or like, okay, we, I'll talk about the, our family discipleship plan in our church in a minute that, okay, we've, we've got to do this thing weekly and it becomes a task or a burden. No, it's way more than that. It's when life happens. That you teach your kids to look at God. To see God's glory. To see God's majesty. Yes, we want to be systematic in how we teach our children. Yes, we want to have an approach. We want to have a holistic approach. But I want you to understand. When your son or daughter gets their, their heart ripped out and stomped on. Over a girl or a boy. And they're crying like that's the perfect time to show them Jesus. Right when when they when they're struggling with perfectionism because they're working on their grades and and they they've made a, made, a, made a bad grade or the opposite is true and like they they don't want to give any effort to school it's the perfect time to show them why we uh, why we apply ourselves why we study why we learn and how to, it can be used for God's glory when your mother or father dies or your a family member dies and your family is mourning and they're hurting. It's a time to show them Jesus. When, when they see a tragedy unfold, it's a time to show them Jesus. When the good things happen in life and we experience the blessings of the Lord and we see the Lord's hands favor in our lives, it's the time to show them Jesus. It's formal and informal. It's an intentional, there's intentional things that I do. Last year, I told you, our discipleship rhythm last year was that on our way to school, we listened to the New Testament. It's what we did. We listened to the whole New Testament and actually started over. And so we used, um, help me out, streetlights, thank you. We used streetlights, and we'd play streetlights off Spotify, and over the course of the year, we listened to it, and we would talk about it, and that's what we do on, on the way to school. There's been different rhythms. There's been scripture memory rhythms in our lives. There's, there's been different things over time. That's intentional. It's, intention, it's intentionality that matters. It's diligence. We must be diligent. 
I'd point out that we're diligent in other things. Like we're going to make sure our kid knows how to field the ball. We're going to make sure our kid knows the right chords on the piano. We're going to make sure that they're well-rounded, that they're in the right clubs. We're going to make sure that their college resumes look good, aren't we? We're going to make sure that that ACT or SAT score is, uh, is good. If it's not good, you need to talk to Buddy. He's got a product that can help you with that, helps you out. Um, he can make those ACT scores go up, I'm telling you. It's really, actually talk to Brooke. Uh, there, I got a shot in. Uh, we're diligent about other things, aren't we? But so, so often we're not diligent about passing on the faith. It's, it, it's got to be intentional, but it also has to be unintentional. And here's what I mean by that. So you're like, hey, you're passing on the faith has to be unintentional. That's right. It, it, it does. I was discipled. My, my father was, was not a believer. He was not. Um, I was discipled by a man named Harris Presley. And Harris had, had, has no children. Um, Harris just faithful. Just faithful. And he just showed up in my life. Now, I believe that was intentional. But there were times when it was unintentional. There were times when I ran into the, you know, I would run into him at Bailey's. That was the gas station up the, up the dirt road. You know, well, actually, it wasn't a dirt road. It might as well have been dirt. Uh, that was the gas station. I'd run into him. I'm pretty sure he wasn't stalking me. Right? But when he saw me, guess what? He'd put his arm around me. Hey, Zach, how you doing? He offered me a job. I was in seventh grade, and he offered me a job. And so I'd get off the school bus, and I would ride my motorcycle uh, to his house illegally, I might add, on the road, no helmet. Uh, it's crazy, stupid. Don't do that kind of thing, kids. And I would go sand furniture. And he would give me the worst jobs. I would, I, he, he, he had a furniture shop, and I would uh, shovel uh, shavings. Boy, that could have come out bad. And um, I'd shovel shavings, and I'd do different things, and, and he'd listen to Adrian Rogers. And if he was listening to Adrian Rogers, I was listening to Adrian Rogers, right? He listened to Christian music, and I was listening to Christian music. We'd get in the car, and he'd, he'd, he would just do things that were in his life because he loved the Lord. With all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, it could not help but flow out of him. And it flowing out of him could not help but have an impact on me. I'm telling you, there were things in his life, because he loved the Lord, impacted me. Not because he was like super intentional with everything he did. He's a man. No man is ever super intentional with everything they, they do, right? It just, it just would flow out of him. And so, you know what? It, it ended up that he did, he did disciple me formally. Uh, one, because he was the he ended up at our church being the youth leader. This was after um, I was there. When I was in, in, in his group, yeah, he did it. But when I was working in his shop, I'd come in with my, hang, my, 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 my head hung low. And he'd say, what's wrong, son? And we'd talk about it. And he'd help me process it with a biblical worldview. When things would happen, he'd be there. It would flow out of him. Now, at our church, we use something called the Family Discipleship Plan. If you were here last week, you heard Gene Mermiliad preach. Gene is from Tri-Cities. You know that Tri-Cities is one of our partners. This is a curriculum that they produced. Um, now, they, they produced it. My wife wrote it. 
uh, for them. And, and so in partnership, they produce the family discipleship plan. But it is a training, God. It is a discipleship tool. And it is, I, you know, I, I say this with a ton of bias. It's excellent. All right? But I think the reality is it's excellent. I think if you were to go to Tri-Cities and you were to walk in their student ministry and you were to walk up to their juniors and seniors as parents of young children and you would watch their, their juniors and seniors, you would say, I want my kid to turn out like that. I believe that you would. I believe that we could, you could, like the proof is in the pudding. You can see what happens with discipleship. So what this discipleship plan does is it, it takes... These big ideas and big truths, that's why we use, I use that language in our sermons. And we learn about them in church, but it's reinforced by the parent at home. And over the course of time, what it does is it teaches you to weave in and out the, screw, the, the truths of scriptures throughout the fabric of our lives. Throughout the daily in and out of our lives. I'm not worried about you going home and having the FDP uh, print it out and that you go over it every week. And that, No, that's not what I'm worried about. I'm worried about that. Uh, what, what I feel, what I, what I know is that we must train up our children, that we must disciple our children, and that's what I care about. That when life happens, we're pointing them to Jesus. I want to pause just for a second and point out that Harris, you know, it's very easy in this sermon series if you don't have children to kind of like bug out for a minute. Harris Presley did not have children, but yet he's made hundreds of disciples. And so even though you may not be in the stage of your life where you have children and you're discipling your children, you're still a part of this church. And you still are a part of the Christian community and, and the call to make disciples of the next generation is still there. And so we want, we want to, to hold that. Now, I, I want to I just bring up a verse really quick. And this, this verse is a proverb. You've heard it quoted, and it's a general truth. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, some of you are like, well, man, I know this kid. Man, his parents were awesome Christian parents, and uh, they raised him. And, and, man, he got to college, and he rebelled, and he's an atheist now. Well, yes, that, that, that happens. Well, I know this person who, man, they're the best Christian you've ever met. They love the Lord, and their parents were horrible, and they didn't get saved until college. Yep, that happens, true, that happens too, right? But this is a general truth, and this is a general truth that, that, that we must hold. Now, I, I get that there may be a parent in here that thinks, man, I, I, I tried, and I've got a wayward child. And I want you to know, man, the Lord is still moving and working, and you ought to, ought to keep praying. You need to, you need to keep, keep praying for that child. Let your church body uh, pray with your child. There's other parents in the room that are like, man, I got, this, I got this thing in the bag. Man, we're training up our child so good. That kid, when they're older, it's going to go so well. Don't, don't do that either. Uh, don't, don't do that either. Man, I, I can tell you, in my years of student ministry, I was, I was a student pastor um, for a, about 10 years, from 2005 to 2015. So in my life, like I, I can look on Facebook and I can go, that kid turned out well. And that kid, hmm, that ain't so good, right? Like, they need to cover that, they need to cover that up. You're too old to go to the club, right? Stop it. Stop. Calm it down. I can tell you, I know, of, I know that we, we kind of can go, okay, well, 
Uh, man, I look at the world, and, and we, we've got to educate our children. We've got to disciple our children. So we're going to homeschool them, and we think homeschool's the only answer. Or, man, we're going to Christian school, and we think that's the only answer. Uh, we can judge, quickly judge public school parents and think, man, they're sending their kids to public school. They must hate their kids. Um, no, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, and I promise you, I can show you, uh, I, could, I could go right now and show you students who are homeschooled who hate the church. And I can show you kids who are public schooled who love the church and love the Lord and serve the Lord and vice versa. Right? It's not a one-size-fits-all. I want you to understand, the one thing that matters is that you love the Lord, that you follow the Lord, that you show in a genuine way, not in a hip hypocritical way, what it's like to follow Christ. I, I would tell you that when we look at most children, when I, when I go back and I can look at, at most kids who are discipled in the church, the one thing that, that shows whether or not they will follow Christ and when they're older is the hypocrisy of their parents. And so kids sniff out hypocrisy. So live out your faith. That's why my points were, you know, there's only one God. Love him more than you love anything else. Instill that in your children. Diligently train your children and show them. Invest in them. We need to move on. Verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. I would point your attention in the middle of this to verse 12. Then take care lest you forget the Lord. Today is 9-11, and when you hear 9-11, there's typically a phrase that comes with it. What is it? Never forget. But I think you will, will you know, often, you know, we think 9-11, we think that Alan Jackson song, Where Were You in the World, Stop Turning, and we, we kind of think through the thoughts, right? Those of us in the room who remember it, but there's a lot of people in this room who were born after 9-11-2001, matter of fact, most of our church, uh, in reality, was born after 9-11-2001. And don't we find it true that it is easy to forget? That as every year goes by, the significance of 9-11 decreases and decreases, doesn't it? This is, our, this is the, the human heart. And man, I, 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 I don't want to forget in my lifetime what it meant for those first responders and and, and the people who died in that terrorist attack. And, and man, so much of our life is shaped because of that terrorist attack. So many, many of the, our, you know, the, the war on terror that started then. And in reality, um, even though we say it's over, there's still, uh, there's still ways in which America is fighting terrorism. I don't want to forget. But way more than that, I don't want to forget what the Lord has done for me. What the Lord is doing. The goodness of the Lord. And... 
you see in this passage, like, this is a reminder, uh, hey, I made these promises, and I'm going to fulfill them. And after we read the book of Joshua, we go back, yes, God made good on his promises. It's Israel that wasn't faithful. It's Israel that lost faith. God didn't lose faith in humanity. God, God didn't stop being merciful or gracious. God was just just and steadfast and immovable. And he did what he said he was going to do. By his, by his uh, purposed will and by his passive will, by his active will and by the things in which he said, no, you want that? I'm going to let that happen. You want a king? Here he is. I don't want to forget the Lord who saved me, just as he commanded them not to forget the God who brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord God who I want to fear. It's the Lord God who I want to serve. And it is by his name that we see in verse 13 that I want to live my life. When I look at verse 14, I don't want to go after other gods. The world is full of false gods that will leave me empty. I don't want to go after those. I want to live my life for God. And so here's my last big idea. It is by faith that we trust God and believe his promises. I want you to understand, any time in the Bible where the Israelites stopped loving God, they stopped loving God because they lacked faith. Our, our love for God, our believing that there is only one God and he's worthy, it's, it's an act of faith. Now, In Hebrew, when it says, hear, O Israel, what it's saying isn't just hear. It isn't saying just listen. It's saying, listen and obey. It's saying, believe. Those two things go, go together. When, he, when the Bible says, hear, it's not just saying hear. It's saying do. And for us, it's not just that we we have faith, it's that we trust. And we have trust, we act. And so it is by faith that we trust God and believe his promises. This is my appeal to you, church. For us not to have what happened in the book of Joshua, but to, to disciple our children, to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, to raise our children, to disciple the next generation that they would follow God even better than we have. That we would be a church that's ob obedient to Jesus and his great commission. That we would take the gospel to all nations. Making disciples and baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the truth. We can believe God's promises because he was raised from the dead. Because he proved that he was Lord when he was raised from the dead. The Lord's Supper, which we're going to take today, this is how we're going to respond, is, is a promise that was made to us. 
and that we do in remembrance of him. That God would shed his, his blood and his body would be broken for us, for our sins. And that those who would believe in him would be saved. It, when we take communion, it is a commitment to the Lord. It's not done in haste. It, it's not done um, as tradition. It's done... Uh, out of obedience to him, it's saying, no, we're going to follow Christ. The Apostle Paul gives us directions on how we ought to take the Lord's Supper. First Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I have received from the Lord what I have also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this is a, a picture of the gospel. This is the, a picture that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that he's telling his disciples that night that this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. This is the promise that I'm giving to you. I'm going to save you. And as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. But he puts some parameters on it. He says, whoever uh, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body itself drinks judgment on himself. And so today, as we take communion, we must do so in a worthy manner. Uh, communion is for the believer. It's for a person who's confessed Christ as Lord. And so today, if you're, you're not a believer, uh, if, if you're here and you'd say, no, I, I don't believe, man, there's, there's really, there's no need to, to, don't feel any pressure. No one's watching to see who takes communion or who doesn't take communion. I, I promise you that. We're, re, we're literally doing a ceremony. Uh, uh, this, this, you know, some people might, the world might look at it as a ritual, but to us it's a confession of our faith that says the Lord died for us and we're, we're eating of his body and drinking of his blood. It's kind of weird. So today, if, if you confess Christ, that is, that is for you. It also says if, if there's unrepentant sin in your life, that this is a time uh, to look at your life, to see what's going on in your life, and to repent of that. This is a call to repentance. Man, maybe today you're convicted that, man, as, as a parent or as a Christian, I've not been faithful. I love things more than I love the Lord. I love this sin more than I love the Lord. Today's the day to repent of that and to put God first. And if you're unwilling to do that, if you're unwilling to repent, don't take communion. I'm going to ask the band uh, to come back up and to lead us um, as we take communion. We're going to sing a song, Promises, that shows us that God is faithful through the ages. That we can love him, that we can trust him, and that we can obey him. And so let us be diligent in it. So Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking you to move and work in our lives. Lord, as we take communion today, Lord, would you be glorified. God, we want to pray specifically for the next generations in our church, Lord, that we would be faithful to make disciples. 
Lord, that when we are hypocrites, that we'd own it, that when we sin, we would repent, that we would live out our repentance before our children, that we would be honest to them, God, that we would be faithful in teaching them, faithful, um, diligent to show them your ways and to teach them how to follow you. Lord, move and work in the next generation. In the next generation of our church, God, would you raise up mighty warriors for your gospel? Lord, from our children, would you take them and raise up church planters? Would you um, take, take and raise up for them missionaries that would move to the utter ends, to the furthest ends of the earth, to the most hardest to reach, the, the places where your name is the most unknown, God, to make your name famous? Lord, you raise up uh, from us faithful Christians who, who enter into public workplaces and public colleges and the, the, the sphere of the world and are faithful, who don't quickly fall away to the things of the, the world, who don't quickly take on false gods that, that turn from the ways of the world. Would you raise up from us? Would you keep them? Would you, would you protect them? But would you use them for your glory and your honor? And so, Father, would you move and work in us today? In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and sing, if, as you feel led, remember, there's, there's no pressure to take communion, but as you feel led, as you've prayed, come up, take communion.